Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Luke Larrative from Seneca. How you going, mate? Oh, uh, how are you, my friend? Very good, mate. Very good. Today, we're talking about two undervalued ASX mid-cap stocks. That's what I tasked you with. And after a bit of back and forth over the past few weeks, we've finally been able to sit down, albeit remotely, to talk about these two companies, which I frankly know very little about. So you're going to be educating me on these. That makes (laughs) us two and a few thousand people that listen to this (laughs) uh, a lot more comfortable. Okay. But before we get to the company, I've got a few quick questions I was hoping to throw at you. And they're more philosophical. So the first one is, why do you think the stock market works? Why wouldn't you think the stock market works? I think the data just shows it works. I think maybe if you're asking me like, why do I think active management is worth doing or why is it worth picking stocks or why is it worth running an actively managed portfolio rather than just indexing? I think it's probably more of an interesting question. I think there's no disputing that investing in the stock market broadly has generated some of the best returns out there, particularly when you look at it on a sort of gearing adjusted basis. So I don't think there's any disputing that the stock market over the long run is a good investment. I don't think you need to believe in anything. Why do I like active management? I think there's quantitative reasons. There's data that supports investing actively and particularly in Aussie equities, particularly in small caps, particularly in emerging market equities. And so I think it's just data and evidence and science. And then I think outside of those sectors and and sort of, I suppose, more broadly that active versus passive argument I'd rather have my invested my money invested in things I understand, things I know. And if I'm going to lose money or underperform doing the things I understand and know and I sleep really well at, at night, that's fine. If I, if I lose money investing in everything, I might feel good relative to my neighbour. I might feel good sort of keeping up with the Joneses. That, oh, I, I lost money, but everyone else lost money, so that's okay. Uh, but that doesn't really, I suppose, satisfy me. I don't run a business because I want to be average. I don't invest in markets or save money or whatever to be average. I'm trying to be above average. I'm trying to live a lifestyle that others don't want to or can't do. So yeah, I mean, it's not a um, an elitist thing or an exceptionalist thing. It's just my personality and you know, I'm competitive and I enjoy the challenges, I suppose, of, of investing. And yeah, so, so that's kind of, I suppose, why I do it the way I do it. No, I like it, mate. I love that you brought it back to like your personal kind of like who you are, like your personal traits and qualities and pursuits. So two more questions then real quick is like, 
a lot of the people when they come to investing and particularly like even on the active side, you mentioned passive versus active. That's not actually where I was going with that question, but I loved your answer nonetheless. Like when you're on the active side, a lot of people, one of the big things that I see is like a drawback for people is the behavioral element. And in particular, people getting swept up and swept down. And I'm just curious how you deal with that, either yourself or as a team, like how do you kind of circumvent that? I think you've got to be pretty empirically minded, evidence sort of in my, you know, sort of minded to be investing in and running an active portfolio. I think by definition, you've got to assume that other market participants are out there trying to beat you. I always trying to use that sort of boxing analogy, like you don't want to get in the ring with Mike Tyson, right? He's going to punch your head in. So, <laughs> um, you know, like you, you've got to understand the, the, the fights you're getting in, uh, for lack of a better word, and, and who your opponent is and why you're better and why it's reasonable to think you've got some sort of edge or advantage over that person. It doesn't always work out that you do, and sometimes you get knocked the out, you know, so times, um, you know, hopefully you, you win a few more than you lose. So I think that's sort of, you know, relevant there. But I think from my perspective, if you don't have a basis of evaluation and an intrinsic sort of understanding what you think that business might be worth at this point in the cycle or at some sort of future point in the cycle, you're going to get swept up in FOMO or you're going to get swept up in fear because, You've got no basis for the so all you look at the price and when the price is higher and you paid for it, you're happy. And if it's down, you're sad. I don't really look at my portfolio every day and worry about the price of things. Like I know the value of things. So it's about understanding valuation, understand the nuance of valuation. It's not a fixed number, it's not a fixed point, it's just a fixed number at a fixed point in time or a range in a, at a fixed point in time. Being flexible enough to change those things, being able to take in new data, being able to quickly synthesize and analyze that data being able to find interesting and other, I suppose, obtuse forms of data to, to give yourself an edge. But uh, at the end of the day, if you don't have some bedrock, some sort of foundation, some sort of sort of core understanding of what you're doing, every price move is going to be a, a mystery to you. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously you're going to get caught up in the emotions because you're uncertain. So, you know, we're most emotional when we're uncertain. So I am more certain about the things that I'm buying than perhaps someone who's getting caught up in the momentum or the fear. And as a result, it doesn't really impact me as much. If you're really sure about what you're doing, you can be wrong for a long time, don't get me wrong. And it's really hard to tell sometimes if the difference between being wrong and and having the wrong timing. But yeah, definitely try and be have that sort of core understanding. You know where things are, you know where they're going to be on average. And over time that things will kind of work towards there ideally and you know change, being being flexible enough to change your mind if new information comes available you mentioned something before you said um that there's a range right you sometimes look think about like valuation ranges and i often find i find a lot of comfort in kind of using ranges rather than a point as exact valuation but i'm curious where you think most investors would go wrong with valuation so let's say you actually do understand the concept of valuation uh, which a lot of people that listen to the show definitely do but where do you think they go wrong once they have the tools and they know how to calculate evaluation? Yeah, I think probably I sort of see two ends of the spectrum and both are kind of wrong. <laughs> um, you know, you have people who don't understand valuation at all and just listen to a hot tip from a friend or you and I banging on about a stock on a podcast and go, I'm just going to buy it. And I think they're the ones who get caught up in the fear and greed sort of emotionalness of what making yeah. and losing money can be. And then you have the other end of the spectrum, which and I'll pick on accountants, so all the accounts out there can give me can give me a hard time. But you know, accountants know how to value stuff on black and white information, and often they find a valuation. They come to forty six dollars seventy DCF, and 
they don't realize that all of the uncertainty or the value isn't in the number it's in the assumptions that are written, that are behind it and and how you've come to that number and having the flexibility and the sort of nuanced understanding of investing to be able to say hey this assumption could be a range and the reality is the market's likely to price that uncertainty variably over time and to be able to sort of have that sort of lens i suppose is probably the right perspective on it and not be so wedded to your intrinsic value so i think that's generally where people go wrong obviously the ideal the optimal model is to have a really good fundamental valuation sort of grounding and when i say grounding what i mean is practically going out there working for companies who are executing transactions on a regular basis or being part of a lot of transactions learning lots of different valuation techniques not just in theory from a textbook that you do in you know corporate finance 101 at uni but how they're applied by founders by owners by buyers sellers different forms of buyers different forms of sellers what strategic value looks like relative to some of parts value relative to cash flow value relative to lots of different angles to things and i think people don't they normally know one and the, yeah. the trick is to know 31 yeah yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I, and that's why I, you know, this job's hard and people who do it part-time, eight hours a week, have a hard time competing with people who do it 12 hours a day, all day, and get paid to do it in blah, blah, blah. It's fucking tough. Well, a lot of people um, do, like you said, they have like one method of evaluation and they just stick to it. And um, I always try and think of ways to like common sense everything and check things and know which model's appropriate for which business. I actually created a course many years ago. It's like 2015, I think, 2016. <laughs> Jeez. Um, and Don't talk yeah. about that. You're showing your age, mate. You're showing your age. <laughs> I am. And uh, I did. Some some people, you're 22, aren't you? I thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. I'm still 21. Every year I turn yeah. 21. <laughs> I did seven different valuation methods and showed how they all result in similar but different answers and how you get to it. And it's really enlightening to go through that. But hey, People who clicked on this episode and they wanted to hear you speak today and they know because they would have heard you at one of our events or maybe they've heard you in previous podcasts or even some of your writing that you do. They want to hear like what kind of companies are you looking at? What's really interesting to you right now? And I had the privilege of getting this information in advance. So I know what kind of companies you're talking about, but I'm happy to start whichever business you want to start with, or if you want to take them both at the same time and then break them apart, totally up to you, but I'll just throw it over to you. So we're going to talk about to broking businesses. When I wrote this like over two and a half, three weeks ago now, one it was probably one's maybe moved a little bit. It's not dead or it's not the opportunity's not gone or whatever. But so I'm still happy to talk about it. And I still think there's upside and we're still holding it. So that's Oz Brokers or it's AUB group now and the code for that's AUB. And the second business just went ex-dividend today and that's Australian Finance Group, AFG. What these businesses have in common is they're both brokers. And obviously I'm an ex-broker a stockbroker. These guys happen to be insurance brokers in the case of AUB and mortgage brokers, for lack of a better word, in the case of AFG. And I suppose what I wanted to, what I wanted to, I suppose, talk about the appeal of a mm. broking business and, and why I find them, well, they can be in these particular sectors, quite a, an attractive sort of investment, even if it was a non-public markets, private markets sort of angle. And, and then we can dive in maybe a little bit into the specifics of each one. But I really like broking businesses like this because often the people involved in them have a monogamous relationship with a high value customer. And I, you know, if you listen to me talk or whatever, I'm always banging on about this 
sort of monogamous relationship with a high value customer. Um, <laughs> it's like getting married to a really hot, rich, smart, good looking girl um, or boy, depending on your preferences. If you've got a customer who's worth a lot of money, who transacts regularly and they only use you, that's very like large lifetime value. If you wanted to do like a lifetime value sort of calculation, mm. like a business does. So in the case of AUB, you know, their brokers have these relationships with businesses as a general bit. They provide commercial business insurance. And I suppose those customers generally, you know, they don't leave. Like, you know, you just have a broker, you go to them, they get you the best deal every two or three years and and you sort of roll on. Same with AFG. If you've got a mortgage broker and they do a good job for you, help you refinance, help you do what you want to do, maybe buy a second property or whatever, you just go back to the same broker over and over again because they do a good job for you. So the customer relationships there are important. They're personal relationships. They're not going to get disrupted by, you know, small changes in price or even changing location. Like the reality is even if just because you move, you might still use the same broker. So I do like those models. I like them because they're often, those relationships often allow for recurring revenue. The nature of the commissions and the way that a mortgage and insurance broking works is you end up with a, an upfront fee which is great for cash flow and investing in your business and buying businesses and acquiring things. But then you also get this trail out the back for the life of the product. And as long as you can retain that customer relationship and you can retain that customer, you'll keep getting up front and you'll, you know, every few years and you're in between, you'll get paid in these recurring revenue lines. So to me, that's a, a high return on a single high value monogamous relationship and it results in pretty good sort of ROEs and, and and ROICs and all these sort of fancy return on calcs that we always bang on about as quality businesses. So that's kind of why we like roking as a sort of an idea. Why I like my business, you know, I sign up a customer, I charge them, for, you know, a percentage of their wealth for advice and hopefully that customer's with me for 20 or 30 years and hopefully we can grow their wealth over time, which will grow our fees over time. And, and it's that simple. They make money, we make money. They lose money, we lose money. And it's aligned and it's clear and everyone kind of knows what, what the go is. So I think that's sort of the, it's no coincidence that I like those kind of businesses when I'm looking on the stock market. Mm, it's like right in your circle of confidence, right? So yeah. 100%. Yeah, that kind of, and you know, I try and live in there and not buy biotechs, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a broker. Yeah, that's, so it's interesting because there's also very little friction in these models, right? Because if you, so I'm assuming that they make their money by like the commission. So that the customer, the end customer at the end of the day doesn't actually fork out, here's a fee every year or out front. It's literally like it's facilitated through them and then someone else pays them. So it's that beautiful model. Correct. And, and everyone sort of thinks, oh, commissions are so bad. They're, you know, they're the worst thing in the world. Well, not really. Like in insurance broking, say, for example, Commissions are standardized in mortgage broking and lending and finance. Mostly, insure their standardized commissions on mortgages. Say, for example, you get sixty basis points roughly up front, um, and you get twenty out the back. And so, if you write a million dollar loan, it's six grand to the broker up front, and they get two thousand a year for the life of that product. You can refinance, as you know, every two, three, four, five, maybe never. But you know, you, you often you do to to chase the best deals and make sure you you know you're getting not getting ripped off on your mortgage and and business broking is probably a little uh, business insurance I'm sorry is probably a little bit less regular on the turnover but the trails are a little bit better as well so you know as a general comment it's more the the theory and so it is a pretty low you're not paying this sort of ongoing marketing customer acquisition new clients got to come in the door give you a new ticket take a margin every time every dollar that comes in is essentially after you've acquired the customer's margin. Yeah, I know I know some people that have their own private businesses in the space and they just... Yeah, they kill they, it. Yeah, they roll in it. Yeah, because it's Especially just... Especially if you've been a- like mortgage broken for 25 years and you've got 
a book of you know a thousand mortgages at an average of 550 grand balance each one and you're making 20 basis points trail i mean you can do the math right like it's a nice income stream and those income streams trade at, at pretty chunky multiples if you're trying to like retire and sell your book into your aggregator or whatever the case may be yeah yeah i like it so a lot of people when they think of insurance uh or sorry a broking and they think of insurance they think of like iag like insurance australia group they think of like suncorp like all of these big businesses yeah. like so they don't really think necessarily like when they think of risk management they think of those not really the brokers so i guess can you give us a general sense of why you think a broker would be a better model than the actual underwriters, like the actual insurer itself? Yeah, I mean, insurers, let's just pretend that all IAG, Suncorp and QBE do is like give you insurance, collect premiums and then pay money out and stuff happens. Like let's just keep it simple. But they're essentially just playing a math game and an actuary math game. You know, this many people, this much property, this many disasters and drama every year on on you know on average over time, we're going to collect more premiums than we're going to than we're going to pay out, and we're going to provision some money for those payments every year. And if we under provision, we're going to our profits are going to get hit, and if we over provision, you know we're going to have this this kicker on the end. So we do invest in underwriters, but my thesis around AUB is a little bit different. All insurance companies are benefiting from inflation because inflation is tied to premiums. So you'll notice that if you look at your insurance bill, they've definitely gone up, right? It doesn't matter what you're insuring or where you are. The insurance is costing more and more every year. That's because inflate that, you know, they've tied to those premiums to inflation and they can pass on inflation really quickly and easily through premium annual renewals. So they're good at passing on inflation as a sector. But if a natural disaster happens, if we've got, you know, the effects of climate change causing more frequent and regular you know, natural disasters or just like unlucky shit happens bucket, those insurance companies get their profits whacked. The yeah. broker who's benefited because more premiums, more turnover and higher value premiums because they're clipping a percentage like AUB, they don't give a shit whether the insurance writer, underwriter gets whacked by Auckland floods. They don't yeah. care. They're just on the they're on the volume, they're on the turnover, and then on the size of the turnover. So it's a much cleaner, neater way to get exposure. And whether it's AUB or Steadfast or whoever, they're all actually benefiting in the same way. And that's your two really on the ASX. And but we've liked, I suppose, AUB relatively on a valuation basis. That valuation gap has now closed. Like this, they're both trading on relatively decent clips now. That being said, this is a, as I said, annual renewals. They're going to be a continual beneficiary of inflation while inflation is sort of relatively elevated for for a number of cycles. I mean, AUB has given two earnings upgrades in the past six months. So just expect more because they're just going to keep passing on inflation and they're going to keep making more money. And the higher premiums are, the more chance people will want to look for a new deal and the more more upfronts they're going to get. And it just keeps going. So yeah, Mm. that's the AUB kind of thesis in a nutshell. So what would you say then for either business, AFG or AUB, what would you say are kind of the chief risks among them? Would there be like, like, because I remember like a few years ago in the Royal Commission, like mortgage broking was brought up and all that sort of stuff. But then since then, mortgage brokers have just kept growing even faster than ever. So I'm curious, like what you see as some of the risks, is it regulatory? or? Yeah, I think like at an individual business level under an AFG as an aggregator or under an AUB, like sure, they face, like us, we face regulatory issues and drama all the time and they're always changing the rules on everybody. Um, But 
I don't necessarily think it's an issue for the group kind of at a, at a higher, you know, individual stock level. The reason for that, I think, is we've already kind of been through the idea that these commissions are acceptable. They're standardised across providers. So there's no incentive for a mortgage broker, for example, to give you a loan from one provider or another. They're just going to get the same money off both of them. So they might as well just pick you the best product. So that, you know, I think when you standardise commissions across the board, then there's no, you're not tilting a broker to one way or the other, not influencing the decision. So, you know, that's fine. So I think, you know, regulatory is not such a concern for me. I think on the AUB side, that is a, the risk there is, is that your inflation expectation, inflation falls off a cliff and these higher rates, this higher rate environment deteriorates quickly and changes quickly. And we see a structural shift in the way the world is really moving from an inflation interest rates kind of balance perspective, GDP growth perspective. So while that's there, that AUB trade is on. Now, it's just a question of how early you can get on it and you know how many more earnings upgrades are going to be. And, and I don't have an answer to either one of those questions. I think there is another sort of round of earnings upgrades still ahead because it's a, it's a bit of a lag and the market's starting to price that now. But there's no reason that stock won't be 32 bucks a share at some point. And, you know, I think it's sort of 27 bucks roughly at the moment. So it's had a pretty good re-rate already, but I think that tailwind is still there. And that will be, in terms of like uh, a trade for us, like that that will continue to be there until this inflation environment changes. So mm-hmm. I think that's your risk there is, is more macro um, in terms of when people will look to exit and this stock will de-rate because of, you know, the way earnings will turn. It's a bit like the banks, you know, like the banks where you want to get out of those NIM peaked in October. So like you don't want to be, even though they're still earning good money and the NIM's, you know, but it's peaked. So now it's just going to get worse for before it gets better again. Mm. Kind of the time you want to be out. I think for AFG, that their, their tailwind hasn't, that you can't see it yet. It's not there in the earnings yet. That's why stock price has gone from two bucks to a buck fifty. And we don't really know when that's going to come in because the business is a little bit more nuanced than, I suppose, this sort of simple macro story for AUB. It's a combination of product mix and churn. So in the mortgage market, a lot of people, as you probably read in the paper and stuff, have like they've fixed their mortgages for like two and three years. And between essentially April and April, to April 23 to April 24, like, there's a lot of estimates about how big this number is. So like 500 to a billion dollars. I don't know how much the 500 million to a billion dollars worth of mortgages are going to get turned over. And it's some huge number of, of mortgages are going to get turned over and going from fixed to variable rates. And the jumps are going to be, you know, from two point something to five point something is what's sort of what's being talked about. So, you know, our view is, is that that's going to push a lot of people like the insurance market when we see price increases come through, that makes people want to shop around and see if they can get the best deal possible. That means they're going to go back to their broker. AFG is the largest broker in the country. They've got the most market share, they're the biggest aggregator. And those brokers are going to be looking on their AFG platform for the best possible deal. So let's think, let's agree that, it, well, let's, let's posit that there's going to be more turnover than average. It's going to benefit upfront. The size of that turnover may or may not be smaller. We don't know how big those loans are going to be. We don't know how much people are going to want to refinance, how many people can refinance. There's, you know, it's a bit of an unknown. What we do know is when you go onto your AFG platform as a broker, AFGs, so they have their own securitization warehouse where they provide loans now themselves. And so oh, right. doing. So they have their own loan book and their loans are very competitively priced because they don't have to pay for customer acquisition because they're just there. 
so they can afford to sort of undercut everyone and AFG will, will lend out money and they make more money on lending money than they ever did on turning over other people's loans. So traditionally, AFG has just been either selling NAB loans, for example, or Westpac loans or whoever else loans, and then also and taking this commission clip and also doing white label products for, for other people. Now they're doing their own products of their own balance sheet, of their own securitization loan warehouse. So that's got really good margins, like triple the margin of everything else they do. So if those brokers start recommending AFG products, because not because they're getting a bigger commission or anything, but just simply because they're cheaper and better for the customer, we think that AFG can start winning more, more market share of the mortgage market because AFG provide things like really, really fast turnarounds. So, you know, you're asking for a refinance, they'll turn it around in 48 hours, you know, whereas it might take two or three weeks through a, a regular bank. So we think that they can win market share that will drive up earnings because it's going to drive up margins. And we think there's going to be a period of increasing churn in the mortgage market where people are going to be shopping around looking for a better deal. So AFG is a stock that while we wait for that to happen, we're taking an 8.5% fully frank dividend yield out of. And so we just sit there, clip our dividend yield, we're getting a decent return on our money. The largest aggregator, they're not, they're not going anywhere. They're not going bankrupt. They're not going broke. It's a good business. It's well run. It's been around for ages, blah, 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 blah. But we've got this upside potentially, if I'm right, about this churn event over the next circa 12 months. I'm just looking at some of the data right now, and that yield is really tempting. Like, it's super tempting. <laughs> it's um, Like, honestly, it is. If the company just does nothing, like literally just goes sideways for five years, you take an eight point whatever percent fully frank yield, wouldn't you? Well, that's why I think about it. So it's a highly cash generative business, like highly cash generative. So like four to five hundred million market cap, just to put a timestamp on it. We're on March sixth, recording this, but the share price is way down. Like the share price has fallen, like from like three bucks down to a dollar fifty in like a year and a bit. So why is that? Is that because of this mortgage cliff? They think people just think property, no refinancing, no one can afford anything, mortgage prisoners, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's kind of like the same argument as the banks. And it's kind of, I didn't mean to bring it up before, but it it sort of makes sense. So like, you know, obviously if you're lending money, there's sort of three components to making money. And the first one is how much money you lend out. The second one is how much margin you make lending that money out. And the third one is how much of that money you don't get paid back, i.e. your back debts. So there's a lot of concern out there that people aren't going to pay their mortgages. This is all going to result in people not defaulting or, you know, it's mortgage stress, blah, bad debts going up, blah, 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 blah. Look, I can't discount it. I can't say it's not going to happen. I don't know, right? My gut feel for it is though, Australians don't default on their mortgages. That's my gut feel for it. And if I was going to bet on anything, I'd bet on Australia's love and obsession and compulsion with housing and their mortgage, and that they'll do anything to make sure that they make their mortgage payments, don't lose the house, essentially. So, look, I don't know that to be true. People might sell. There might be a housing crash. Like, I'm not sure. No one knows the answer to these things. But I think that is why we've seen it, you know, AFG's share price come down as much as it has. There's probably a few earnings hiccups there as well. You know, their business is, like I said, in a, I suppose, a transitory period where sort of people are still guessing and the market's still kind of, is probably not that great at estimating AFG earnings and they can be sort of impacted because the securitization book is relatively small. Getting the earnings right is kind of hard. So analysts can kind of be a bit off and that can kind of push fundies to be, you know, are they missed, blah, blah, blah. But 
I think here it's important to take a step back, kind of look at the trend of this business, where where it's going in terms of not share price, but I'm talking about like the strategy they're trying to do. They're trying to shift from a lower margin, lower brand equity product into a higher margin product and do it without spending a dollar on customer acquisition costs. So if they're right, the returns will be really, really good. If they're wrong, it won't work, but they're in no worse off situation in, in my mind than where they are today with bugger all market share and whatever. And I just see this churn event through the largest network of brokers as a huge market share gaining opportunity for them, which could spit recurring revenues for a number of years ahead and just drive up the baseline earnings that are in AFG. So that's mm. kind of my thesis with that stock and why I'm happy to cop eight and a half percent, and which you know is is suboptimal in terms of total return, particularly if you bought it at two bucks and it's now you know you'll get you're happy with a eight, six percent dividend and now you're happy with an eight and a half percent dividend. Mm. But I don't see a lot of downside at this valuation, medium term. Sure, anything can happen to earnings over a quarter or a half or even a year. Yeah. But shorter term, uh, longer term, I think the product mix shift, coupled with a normal rate cycle and the mortgage market doing its thing, and this churn event could see AFG be a much much better business. I'll just throw some numbers out there just to finish this segment on AFG. So um, just looking at their slide, most recent investor preso. So they've got 10% share of brokers in the country of residential brokers and 2% of commercial and asset financing. Their loan book for residential is 100 is 189 billion. So that's a huge, huge loan book there. Uh, like in even for a small business like this. And they said the percentage of profit across the businesses. So the difference between the aggregation, which is that standard broking, is 34% versus you know loan distribution and loan manufacturing themselves, 66%. So substantial kick up if it does pay off for them. So really interesting business. AFG is a ticker symbol. You can find out more obviously by jumping into your brokerage account, reading up on some of the companies. I'll also put a link in the show notes to Luke's website, uh, Seneca Financial Solutions. There'll be a link in the, the show notes to a report the team just put out recently as well. If you want to go and check that out, there's three dividend stocks in there where there's a write-up on AUB. So go and check that out. It's just in your podcast player now. But Luke, mate, I know everyone loves hearing from you on the show. So I really appreciate you taking some time to join us. I appreciate you uh, letting me rant on. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.